This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Hebrews. You know, how fast does one person mature in their faith versus another? I mean, that can vary. There's no metric for it. But whatever the condition of the Hebrews that Paul's writing, or Paul, whoever, wrote to uh, wrote the letter of Hebrews, it's obvious. It's obvious that they're way behind where they should be. And so it's a good question for us to ask ourselves. You know, how long have we been a Christian? And how much have we really grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? How much scripture do we know? Or are we still kind of being bottle-fed? Pastor Gary is going to ask some tough questions in today's message. How long have you been a Christian? How much have you really grown in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? And how much scripture do you know? These are great questions to ask yourself as you consider your walk with Christ. The Hebrews were found to be immature in the faith. That's not something we want for ourselves. And asking these questions will help you and I stay on track as we continue to grow in Christ. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Hebrews chapter 6 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Hebrews chapter 6. All right, folks, you should know this by memory at this point. Jesus is better, superior, greater than. This is the purpose of the, the writing of Hebrews the people who are receiving this letter, we don't know the author. Again, a lot of people assume it was Paul. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Nobody knows for sure. It doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit inspired it all. It's all from the Lord. But the, the recipients are Jewish believers in Jesus. So it's a writer to the Hebrews, but these Hebrews are Jewish believers. And the writer of Hebrews is encouraging them, don't get lazy in your faith and don't fall back into just Judaism in terms of its practices. You need, to, you need to continue to follow Jesus, serve Jesus, love Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews is making the argument Jesus is better than, superior, greater than all these different things. The prophets, the angels, greater than Moses, better than Joshua. And then the section we find ourselves in here now between chapters 5 and 9, he makes the argument that Jesus is better than the high priest because they would have been completely dependent upon the high priest in Old Testament times in order to have access to God, you had to go through a high priest. And so God initially implemented the priestly system and in particular a high priest for two purposes. We talked about this last week. The role of the high priest was to represent God to man and man to God. And so before Christ came onto the world scene, the high priest was a human vessel through whom a people would then have access to God. And, and as God's representative, the high priest would then also represent God to man. So there was a purpose and there was a function in the role of the high priest. But when Jesus comes along, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that he served as the ultimate and final high priest for all eternity. And there are several verses, again, just to remind us of this that I just wanted to point out to you for you note-takers. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 is an important reminder that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, 
the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Also, uh, John would write in 1 John 2, 1, he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Some of your translations say we have an advocate. That's one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And then John also would write, quoting Jesus in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. He's the only one we go through to have access to the Father. We do not go through any other human vessel today in order to get to God. So with all due respect to the Roman Catholic Church, with all due respect to the Greek Orthodox Church, with all due respect to people who think that there's an intermediary, you do not need to go through another human being to have access to God. Jesus Christ dies on a cross and then provides for us direct access to the Father through Jesus. He is our high priest. And so the writer of Hebrews makes this argument. We're going to see that argument continue to unfold in the following few chapters. But for tonight, we find ourselves here in chapter 6, where the first part of chapter 6 is a continuation of the theme at the end of chapter 5. So really, in order to understand the first few verses of chapter 6, I have to back up and reread what we read at the end of chapter 5 last week. So if you look in your Bibles at chapter 5, verse 11, the writer says this, we have much to say about this, talking about the whole priesthood, and he'll get back to that. He says, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. So again, remember from last week, he, he's going to, you know, he's going to kind of get up in their grill a little bit here, and he's going to rebuke them about their, their shallow Christianity. And he says in verse 12, in fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. He says, you need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And I pointed out last week that the word trained there in verse 14 in the original Greek language is gymnazo. We get our English word gymnasium. And, and all of us are very conscious these days of, you know, we're health conscious and, you know, we want to get into the gym. We want to make sure we eat right and we exercise. And so there's a great deal of emphasis placed on physical training and physical conditioning, which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing, but that's not an eternal thing. And what's important for us to realize, especially as Christians, if we profess Christ as our Savior and we're followers of Christ, is that we need to also be just as concerned, if not more so, in the training of ourselves spiritually. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, it's a sad commentary on the church to be schooled in Scripture and yet to be spiritually mature. And so he says here, it's, you know, you guys ought to be teachers by now. He says, but what I find is I still have to be feeding you milk. He said it shouldn't be that way. It should be that you are on solid food now, but you're still craving milk. You're still on the bottle. And he says, you need to grow up in your faith. Now, you know, how fast does one person mature in their faith versus another? I mean, that can vary. There's no metric for it. But whatever the condition of the Hebrews that Paul's writing, or Paul, whoever, wrote, to, uh, wrote the letter of Hebrews, it's obvious. It's obvious that they're way behind where they should be. And so it's a good question for us to ask ourselves. You know, how long have we been a Christian? 
And how much have we really grown in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? How much scripture do we know? Or are we still kind of being bottle fed? And so he continues on this theme now into chapter 6. Look at verse 1. He goes, therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. All right, so let's just pause there, and we're going to back up and look at this a little bit, because he talks about how we need to leave the elementary teachings, and we need to move on to Christ, but then he basically lists, here are some of the elementary teachings that that we need to, you know, already have an understanding of, because we need to move on and go on to maturity. So, I thought it would be best before we move on and first kind of highlight what does he say are some elementary teachings? Because here's the deal. It's important. I mean, here we are in this section. It's important that all of us know at least some of the elementary teachings that he's talking about here. Because, you know, how embarrassing would it be for, you know, you to get up to heaven, all right, and and then you start to have this conversation with, with the Apostle Peter, and Peter starts asking you, hey, yeah, what, you know, and you just start having Bible discussions about what you know about some of these things that are listed here. And, and all of a sudden you have to admit, you know, I, I don't even, I don't know anything about any of this stuff. I don't know anything about baptism. I don't, I don't really know anything about repentance, at least, you know, to, to, to salvation. I don't, I don't really know some of these things. And, and Peter's going to look at you, and here's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. He's going to look at you and say, really? Well, what church did you go to? <laughs> you know, so, so I'm thinking to myself, why, why, why instead of breezing through this section, why not just kind of pause here so you can have an intellectual discussion one day with Peter and Paul and Mary, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary, some great music. But anyhow, you're going to get up there, and you're going to want to have some intelligent conversation with these folks. So, so what he does here is he lists six elementary truths in verses 1, 2, and 3. And it really is that easy. I mean, it's easy as 1, 2, 3, really, because that's, he just says these are elementary things. And in verses 1, 2, 3, it's, it's as easy as 1, 2, 3. It's as simple as do, re, mi, A, B, C, 1, 2, 3. Baby, you and me. Anyway, a little Jackson 5 for your, for your delight on a Wednesday night. But anyhow, he lists six things here. And then what he does is he actually groups them in pairs. So we're going to look together at, you know, one and two. And then he goes three and four. And he goes five and six. The first one and two on the list that he combines here are repentance and faith. So he says here in verse one, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. So he's going to pair these together. Here's the first pair that goes together, repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. So the first pair is Godward. He, He talks about in our relationship, you know, vertically with God, we need to have a basic understanding of repentance and faith. Now, repentance is not a bad feeling that you get when you sin. That's called remorse or regret, but that's not repentance. So I mentioned on, on Sunday that repentance is the Greek word metanoeo from two words, meta meaning change, 
and noeo to meaning to exercise the mind. And so repentance is to change one's mind about sin to the point of turning from it and then turning to God. So it's not just turning from, it's turning to. It's leaving, it's having a change of mind as it relates to, you know, a certain habit or lifestyle. When you begin to become confronted with what God says is right and wrong, and then you get under conviction about what's wrong, it's not enough just to say, you know, I really feel badly about that. What, What has to happen is real repentance is feeling badly that moves you to the place of exercising the mind to realize I've got to change my thinking concerning this, and I have to change my lifestyle concerning this and turn from it and turn to God. That's repentance. Repentance is you're going one way, and when you get under this conviction, you go 180 degrees in the opposite direction. That's repentance. It's different from remorse. A lot of people feel badly because they get caught. That is remorse. That might be regret. That's not repentance. Repentance is renouncing it, leaving it, turning and going the other direction toward God. So, then once a person repents, then they exercise faith. So it's coming under conviction, realizing about your sin, and then asking God to forgive you, and then accepting by faith. Now, you see repentance and faith together because they're kind of twin words used together in Acts 20, 21, where Paul is preaching at the end of Acts, and he says, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Okay, so faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, as Hebrews tells us. So it is putting your trust, your confidence in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. It's exercising faith. It's intelligent faith. It's not just blind faith. It's not just this, uh, you know, this ignorance. This is recognizing and believing the truth as it's revealed to us in the Word of God, accepting it by faith, because we weren't there, So it it takes the exercise of faith that Christ died on a cross for our sins. So faith in conjunction with repentance, these are elementary things. This is where it begins. I mean, as a Christian, this is where it all begins. Repentance and faith. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, listen, if you're still not understanding repentance and faith, then you're not even grasping the elementary things, Christianity. So that's the first pair that he talks about here, repentance and faith. And then if, and if you look further then, he says in verse 2, instruction about baptisms and the laying on of hands. So that's really the next pair that he talks about here, baptism and the laying on of hands. And so now he moves, instead of Godward, he moves to coin a word, manward. He, he, he moves kind of horizontally, and he's talking about now man's relationship to one another in terms of being baptized and which is you know unto the lord but it is what we do in in baptism and then it's also the laying on of hands so notice if you would that the word baptism there is plural it's baptisms baptisms because there are three baptisms that are mentioned in the new testament there's the baptism by water in Matthew 28, 19, and there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, in Matthew 3, 11, and also the baptism of fire mentioned also in Matthew 3, 11. And then the baptism of the Holy Spirit mentioned further in Acts 1, 5, and 8. So let me just comment on these briefly. Each one of these could be kind of a sermon of its own, but probably the most familiar one is the baptism of water. 
And so this is something Jesus modeled for us. John the Baptist baptized him. And then Jesus tells us in part of the Great Commission, I put the verse up there for you in Matthew 28, 19. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so baptism is an outward manifestation of an internal work. When, when someone goes underwater, they are demonstrating and identifying with the finished work of Christ. That, that just like Jesus was buried and then he rose from the dead, the Christian life is about dying to the old self and being raised to newness of life. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 6, verse 1 and 2 and 3. So it's the way that a Christian identifies himself or herself with what Christ did. I'm going to die to self. I'm going to live for Jesus just as Jesus died physically, rose again from the dead. And so that's what water baptism is about. Now, some of your traditions, you know, are sprinkling. Uh, Some of your traditions involve infant baptism. My tradition growing up involved infant baptism. And yet when I began to read the Bible for myself, I couldn't make a case for it. You know, it's interesting sometimes the things that you grow up learning, if you, if you were, you know, it can be any subject, but just in the context of what we're talking about, you grow up in the church, you learn certain things, and you accept it as, as if it were fact until you begin to search Scripture for yourself. Uh, it, it's, like, it's like the story of, of uh, the, the lady who would, before she would cook a roast, every time she would cook a roast, she'd cut off both ends of the roast and put it in the roasting pan and put it in the oven. And her little girl noticed that one day. She said, Mommy, why do you cut off both ends of the roast before you put it in, in the oven? She says, you know, I, to be honest with you, I, I, don't, I don't even know why. I just saw my mom do that all the time. Why don't you go ask Grandma? So the little girl went and asked Grandma. Grandma, Mom cuts off both ends of the roast before she puts it in the oven. She said she learned that from you. Why, why did you do that? She goes, I don't know. I, I, I think it makes it juicier. I just cut off both ends of the roast because I saw my mom do that. And so the little girl's great-grandma was still alive. She said, why don't you go ask your great-grandma? She went and asked great-grandma. Great-grandma. Yeah? Mom and grandma cut off both ends of the roast before they put it in the oven. They say it makes it juicier. They're not even sure why, but they learned it from you. Why did you cut off both ends of the roast? She goes, oh, my lands, I only cut off both ends of the roast because I never had a pan big enough. (laughs) But they just started doing it because that's what they learned by tradition. And so some things we learn, but they aren't necessarily true. And so infant baptism, while maybe a nice thing to remember, a, a special event, baptism by water, the Bible teaches, as something that identifies a person as having accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, that can be at a very young age, and it can be at an elderly age, but water baptism is an external sign by going under the water and coming up out of the water that you identify with the finished work of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So that's one baptism, and probably the most familiar kind of baptism. And by the way, that's not required for salvation. There's nothing that you and I can do to improve upon the cross. It's faith in Jesus who died on a cross alone. So water baptism is just an act of obedience to identify with the finished work of Christ. And Jesus tells us we should be, so we should, we should do it out of obedience. There's the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism by fire. Let me just comment on the baptism by fire real quickly. John the Baptist mentions this in Matthew 3, verse 11, when he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one greater than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
Now, John the Baptist was speaking, of course, of Jesus. And that baptism of fire is simply this. The baptism of fire is when you go through times and seasons in your life when God, because of His love for us, will sometimes turn up the heat to refine us. Precious metal is best refined through the intensity of heat. And when heat is applied, taking gold, for example, the purity of gold is made more pure, 10 carat, 14 carat, 21 carat, 24 carat, because the heat intensifies, and when the heat intensifies, the impurities of the metal rise to the surface where it can be skimmed off. And that's what makes what, what is left then becomes more pure. And there are times, some of you might be going through some of this right now, where you feel like you're under intense heat, like the pressure and the intensity of something that you're going through. And it's not comfortable at the time. But what often happens is God is using those adversities or difficulties to kind of bring some impurities to the surface, some things in our own hearts and lives that we need to get rid of, and the process of that refining fire makes us more like Jesus. And it's difficult, it's often painful, but the baptism of fire is something that most of us at some point in our lives will go through, and it's that refining process when God is doing His his just purifying work in our hearts and in our lives. And then the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if you have your Bibles, again, this could be a whole sermon by itself, but I'm just going to give a very quick overview. If you go to John chapter 14, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that Jesus began to speak of in John chapter 14, and then again in Acts chapter 1. So I'm going to just take you through a couple of verses here. Many of you already understand about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it's it's something that the writer of Hebrews says, I, I want baptisms plural, I want you to move on. This is elementary, so I want to make sure everybody has at least a, a cursory overview of what it means. So in John chapter 14, uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says in verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. Some of your translations say comforter or helper. It's the Holy Spirit to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And he says to them, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be, shall be, in you. So right there we have an understanding of uh, two aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is with you. Padra is the Greek word. He's around you. None of us came to faith in Christ except that the Holy Spirit was working around us to woo us, to bring us, to lead us to Christ, okay? So that's one of the aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Even before you get saved, He's with you. He's moving you to this place of surrender to Jesus. And then Christ says here to His disciples, and He shall be in you. Now, the Holy Spirit comes in us when we receive Him as Lord and Savior. That's all we have for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to this edition in Hebrews again, or if you'd like to explore other messages from Pastor Gary through the Bible teachings, just visit our website 
cornerstoneconnection.cc or download our mobile app to stay connected to the truth of God's Word everywhere you go. It's a great way to have a quiet time anytime. You'll find a link at our website along with more information about the church behind this ministry, Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. If you're in the area, come visit us. You'll find service times and more information at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Is there anything happening in your life right now that we could be praying for? We'd love to know how God is leading you and changing your heart. Or is there anything God's doing that deserves some rejoicing? Please let us know. We love that we can interact with our listeners and we feel honored to be able to pray for your requests. Give us a call at 703-771-1500. That number again, 703-771-1500. With that, our time with you has come to an end for today. Put a marker in your Bible where we left off in Hebrews and make plans to join Pastor Gary next time for more here on Cornerstone Connection. You know